Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Right, this morning we will be going, we are continuing in our series on uh, covenant and kingdom. And so just to kind of review a little bit, um, we believe that throughout the Bible there are these two major themes um, that are just woven through the story of Scripture from the beginning and through the end. And that is that God wants to be in deep relationship with us, and that's the kind of covenant side, and that in that re- relationship there is, um, there is work to be done, there is work that God is advancing that he wants to use his people to go and do and accomplish. And that is kind of the kingdom side. And so God has brought his covenant and God is advancing his kingdom. And his kingdom will be advanced with us or without us. And we know that it's coming to a place where God is eventually going to return. He's going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom fully and completely here with us where he is going to reside with his people and we will be with him. And there'll be no more night and that his glory will shine and that there will be no more pain and no more tears. And that is the trajectory that we're on and that the kingdom of God is moving on. And so this morning we are going to continue through the story of the Bible, kind of looking at the climax that is the cross. Now this morning is an incredibly familiar story. It's like, oh, the cross of Jesus, the passion of Jesus. We talk about it all the time, but it's the thing that's central to our faith. And I believe that the cross is a place where our meditation should be and it should always move us and stir us and that we should not grow stale or bored of this story and of this message and of Jesus' passion for his people and for the world that he, the kingdom that he has for us and that he's advancing through. And so this is what we're going to look at this morning. And this morning we're going to be in the book of Luke. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke, we're going to kind of jump through the book of Luke, that's going to be the primary text that we look through, kind of this passion story. And we're going to start in Luke a little bit early. We're going to look in Luke chapter 9 uh, is where we're going to start. And we're going to start by just looking at Jesus' heart for his people. <laughs> now, the book of Luke begins in Jerusalem and it ends in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a major theme in the book of Luke. And so if you ever want to do kind of like a study through Luke, you could go and look through um, kind of what kind of significance does the city of Jerusalem have throughout the book. It begins with the birth, um, with actually with Zechariah and the temple, and then it ends uh, with Jesus and the resurrection. And here, Jesus, he's on mission. He's with the 12 apostles. He's been sending them out, and he's been healing people. But there's a place in the story where everything kind of changes, and it, he sets his heart towards the city of Jerusalem, and I want to read that in Luke 9.51. And so Luke 9.51, it says this. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knows that in Jerusalem, there waiting for him is the cross. He knows that there is where he is going to be glorified. He knows that that is where he is going to be crucified. He knows that that is where he is going to have victory over sin and death. And here in Luke chapter 9, he says that he sets his face towards it. And if you read through the rest of Luke, it's, there are these kind of like transition statements that say, on their way to Jerusalem, while they were journeying to Jerusalem, as they're heading to Jerusalem, like Jesus is intent on getting there and getting the job done that is waiting for him there 
in Jerusalem. If we turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 30 through 35, he kind of laments over Jerusalem. He has this heart, this passion for Jerusalem, and this is what he says as he thinks about heading towards it. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. For behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you that you will say, you will not say to me, bless, <laughs> sorry, and I will say to you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has this incredible heart for his people. He has this heart for the city that he wants to bring them in and bring them close. He wants to protect them as a hen protects her chicks. The city of Jerusalem has rejected him. They have kind of missed that he has come. They've missed that he is the Messiah. And they've rejected him, and this pains Jesus. And it pains him that as he comes close to Jerusalem, as he's about to near it, we go to Luke chapter 19. We continue in the story. Luke 19, verse 41 we find that as he drew near to the city and he saw the city, I just imagine kind of like he's walking towards Jerusalem and he comes up this mountain, he kind of breaks the mountain there and the distance is the city of Jerusalem. This is where this scene happens. And it says that as he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave stone upon one another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is looking ahead to 70 CE when the temple and Jerusalem is just completely destroyed and wiped out. He sees the future of Jerusalem. He sees the trajectory that they're on. He's just weeping, saying, if only you knew, if only you knew that your God had come, if only you know that I had come to save you, to protect you like children, to love you, to set you on a new and different trajectory, if only you knew. And this is why Epiphany is important. This is why we sit down and have that little mini lesson with the kids around Epiphany, because the Epiphany is about recognizing the visitation of our God, that God is with us, and that we come and we adore him like the Magi, and that he is worthy of kingly gifts, that he is worthy of us giving our lives to. I was talking to one of my friends who lives in the UK. He actually lives in America Stephen, he's over on the east side, if you guys know him. But he's, he says, kind of curtly, he's like, I don't know if you know this about me. He's like, but I'm loyal to two women. And I'm like, oh, you are. He's like, I'm loyal to my wife, but I'm also loyal to the crown. I'm loyal to the queen of England. He's like, so I'm loyal to two women. Now he's like, when Queen Elizabeth dies, he's like, I'll be loyal to a man and a woman. He's like, but, he's like, that's how I see myself as a British citizen. He's like, I am loyal not to my country, not to my flag, but I'm loyal to a person. And whatever they say, I have to be willing to be subject to. And that's a positioning that we as Americans really don't understand. It's a position that we really don't see. But as he talks about this loyalty to this person, to this crown, I get a glimpse of what it is to be ruled by a king. 
And as I think of these three kings coming to visit the Messiah, who's just a two-year-old child, and them laying down, kneeling, giving gifts to him, subjecting themselves to Jesus, saying, you are worthy to be king. How much more we can go and go to Christ and say, you are worthy. He is worthy of good gifts. His visitation has come. Let us not be like Jerusalem. If his heart for Jerusalem is that they would know the visitation, let us not be like them and let us step into the safe place under his wing. Let us recognize that he has come and let us go, as the Christmas hymn says, adore him and give him the glory that he deserves. This is kind of the heart of the season of Epiphany is that we would recognize that he is God's son whom God is well pleased. We talked about that last week as we talked about Jesus' temptation and how Jesus fights off temptation not with his own strength but with the strength of the identity that God gives him as his son whom he is well pleased in. That Jesus doesn't have to prove himself in front of the devil. He can just be. And from that place he has power and authority to rule over the powers of evil in the world. And so this is where Jesus kind of enters into Jerusalem and begins to enter into the passion story. And so when he comes in to Jerusalem, he comes in to celebrate a meal, to celebrate a meal called Passover. It's this festival where God had made a covenant with the people of Israel saying that if you sacrifice this lamb and if you paint the doorpost with its blood, this perfect lamb, I will pass over you and I will set you free out of your bondage in Egypt. And so the people of Israel did this. They experienced God's grace and God's sovereignty as he passes over him, as he passes over the people of Israel. And then the next day they are set free and they are led through the Red Sea. God delivers them from bondage and slavery and God creates this covenant and he also establishes his kingdom with them. He moves literally the sea for them to be set free. And this is a festival they remember. It's a covenant festival. It's a festival where they also where they're reminded of God's faithfulness to them. But it's also a festival where they have hope. They have hope that God will free them from bondage again. Because here in this time they are occupied by Rome. And so there's kind of this angst around the Passover that says, it would be awesome if God would show up and do another Passover. And Jesus is walking around saying, I am here to set you free. I'm here to give liberation. And so they begin to mistake Jesus as the one who has come to execute that type of Passover, some type of military coup to free them from Rome. But instead, Jesus has bigger things that he's here to free us from. It's not just political occupation, but it's to free us from the curse of death that you and I cannot conquer. That's not political. That's part of us breaking God's commandment in the garden where we rebel against him. God is here to fix that. He's here to heal us and redeem us from the slavery of the sin that binds us to do good and to move us into new life. And so it's at this Passover that Jesus begins to redefine the meal. He takes the bread and he takes the cup, and if we go to Luke chapter 22, we can see this. He takes this meal that is covenant in relationship already. 
and he grows it even deeper. And so Luke 22, verse 19, it says this. It says, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said to them, this is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that's poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus changes the script of the meal in this place. He starts talking about new covenants. He talks about his body and his blood. And this was not part of the traditional Passover meal. And the disciples begin to scratch their heads and wonder, what is going on here? And Jesus is laying out the new terms of the new covenant. He's saying, this covenant you get to participate in. Yes, we're here to remember where God was faithful in the past to free you, but now we're going to use this meal to see how I am faithful to free you from the temperamental spirits of the earth that bind you and that bind your soul and free you from hell. And so he redefines the meal by making the bread his body, the cup his blood. But the covenant still, these are just symbols. These are just symbols of the covenant the wine and the cup. And they're symbols that we get to participate in. We participate in communion every week where we take the cracker and we dip it in the grape juice and we remember the sacrifice that God has done. But Jesus has not established his new covenant yet. He's just laying out the terms and he's just identifying these symbols to say, this is how you're going to remember what I'm about to do. But the covenant had two parts. It had the terms but then it also had the blood. It required sacrifice. It required death. And that's what Jesus had to walk into next. And it's my hope that as we live and as we participate in this covenant, because it's something that we get to participate in, it's something that we get to live in. I mean, a lot of times I read the Old Testament, I read of all of the great things that God has done. I'm like, man, I wish I could have been there for that. I wish I could have seen that. There's a lot of times where I've heard this, you know, if I could have just seen God do that, I definitely would have believed. I mean, Israel saw it happen, and they didn't believe. They had a hard heart. There's stuff where God moves mountains in our own lives, and we have a hard time believing as well. But God has invited us into this covenant with us to participate in it. This is something that we get to actively do, and we do it each week. And my hope is, is that we don't just leave at the symbols, we don't just take the bread and we don't just take it and dip it in the cup and say, there, I participated in the covenant and go on with our week. Because I think if we were to do that, we would leave it short just as if the story were to end here, Jesus would have left it short. He wouldn't have actually fulfilled the covenant. And so we can participate by taking bread and, and juice and putting it inside our bodies. But the way that we've participated in it more is by living it by knowing that he is our God, by knowing that he is our champion, by knowing that we have peace with God in him, and going out and sharing that with other people that we engage with day to day. And so Jesus, he sets the terms of the covenant here by redefining the cup and the bread, but now he's got to go do it. And the first place that he's led to to begin to do this thing of fulfilling the covenant is a garden. He goes to the garden to pray. And the garden is where we, you and I, began at the beginning of creation. It's in the garden that we were tempted and we failed. And it's also in the garden where Jesus is confronted with his humanity. 
And like I said last week, a lot of times we don't like to see Jesus as human. It's kind of that piece of Jesus that we kind of like tend to ignore. We love the divine stuff of him. We don't really love the human stuff of him. But the human stuff is so real. It's so raw. It's so relatable. Because you and I are human. And it's so awesome. And it's good news that God became man, that he could relate with us and that we could relate with him. And so it's in the garden that he com- he's confronted and he's tormented. And he's tempted to like give it all up. He's praying to God, God, if there's some other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. I know we laid the grounds for the covenant. I know that, that where this thing ends. But man, suffering and going to the cross does not sound awesome. I mean, he's sweating blood. But he's faithful. And he stands resolute. And he walks out of the garden victorious where you and I have failed. But yet he's bound. And he's on his way to the cross. And he's on his way to the cross. And he's stripped. He's beaten. Crown of thorns is laid upon his head. He's led up to the mountain of Golgotha. And he's pinned down to the cross. Nails go through his arms and through his feet. And he is mocked. But here on the cross, he's the Lamb of God. He's the Passover Lamb. In the book of John, it says that he is crucified at the same time as the Passover lambs are being prepared for slaughter. John is saying, Jesus is this true lamb. This is a new Passover. God is doing a new thing, and he's calling us into relationship with him. It's also on this cross that Jesus takes our place. Because at the end of the day, that, that should be you and me. God's wrath because of our sin demands our death. That's the equation. We sin, we die. And God is just by executing that. But here, God is, executes his justice not on us, but on his son. Who takes our place, who stands in our place, who absorbs the wrath of God so that he's able to extend forgiveness. And to me, this is the most profound thing of forgiveness. Because we often talk about forgiveness in a way that like, says that, well, it's kind of forgive and forget, or we talk about forgiveness where it's like, you just got to really work through it and eventually you can let it go. No. The heart of forgiveness is at the cross. And it's at this place where Jesus stands in our place and absorbs the wrath that was unjustly done to him. And whenever we are wronged, whenever we are wronged by another, whenever we have to offer forgiveness to somebody, it requires us to absorb that wrong that was done to us and to give them the freedom to walk free. We don't get to retaliate. We don't get to strike back. We get to receive what was wrongly done to us and absorb that. And it is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly on our end. Forgiveness is incredibly costly on God's end. It costs them his son. But we absorb that cost and we're then able to give freedom. We're able to give forgiveness. We're able to be reconciled. 
And so it's at the cross he draws us into the deepest place of relationship because it's at the cross where he says, everything that you've done against me, I'm going to absorb. I'm going to take it. And it's going to be incredibly painful. But in return, you are going to get to walk free. And we're going to be good. We're going to be more than good. I'm going to call you my son. I'm going to call you my daughter. And so it's at the cross where Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin for us. And it's at the cross where we get to take on the title of sons and daughters of the Most High King. This is good news. At the cross, the kingdom of God also comes breaking through. Because it's at the cross that just some weird stuff starts to happen. The sky goes dark. It's the middle of the day. It says that the, the sun fails. In some, some versions, it says the sun just fails at this time. So the sky goes dark for a period of time. The earth begins to shake. There's a massive earthquake. Graves start bursting open, and people come walking out of them, something that we don't really like to talk about or think about, but like that had to be weird. So that's happening. And then the curtain in the temple is torn in two. In the temple in the most holy place, there's this curtain that... Beyond this curtain was the presence of God, the real presence of God. And in this temple, this curtain is torn from top to bottom, signifying that the presence of God cannot be contained in a building built by, hands, by man's hands, and that God's presence is going out into the earth, and that's going to be available for all people in all places in all countries. And so what we see is that on the cross, as Jesus kind of begins to breathe his last, as all of these things begin to happen, as the kingdom of God begins breaking through, he breathes his last and he says, it is finished. And this word, it is finished, is not a word of defeat. Not like, oh, it's finished. Thank God that's over. But it's a word of victory that says, it is finished. For all time. For all the past for all the present, and for all the future. It is finished. There is victory. And in Luke, it says, as he breathes his last breath, he gives his spirit to God. Which I think is really profound. You might think, oh, that's fine. That makes sense. But really, like, if he's sacrificing, if he's trying to, to take us, like, conquer sin and death, you would think that he would give his spirit over to Satan. That, like, that would be the mutual exchange. That, like, you know, Satan, you'd get my son, I would get my people. But instead, Jesus, he commits himself to God, and he conquers Satan. He wipes Satan out of the equation. I think a lot of times we think that it's this transactional thing. At least I've thought about it that way. Like, well, Satan gets Jesus, we get life. It's this transaction that happens, but really it's, it's Jesus destroys him. Jesus conquers over him. Jesus rules over him because he is God's son. And maybe, maybe you've never thought about it that way. Maybe I'm the only crazy one in the room, but that's just kind of how I've thought about it. I've always thought of it as a transaction, but as I read it this time, it was just profound. And he commits himself to his God. This God that he felt incredibly alienated with at the cross. This God that no sin can be around, but yet he's covered in the sins of the world. But yet he's still turning towards his father. And the authority and the power of evil is crushed through him. 
And in the resurrection, our, that victory is secure. Three days later, Jesus comes bursting out of the grave and he is resurrected in a full body. He's asking people, come, touch me, come, see me. He eats some fish. He's walking around. He is, the disciples are celebrating that he is alive. And Paul writes kind of a reflection of this victory. He says, in the resurrection, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's one of my favorite verses to read at funerals. Because in funerals, we're kind of confronted with death straight on. We're like, man, like death is a real thing. But it's also at funerals where I have like the greatest hope that this is true, that there is victory, and that even though there is a dead body in front of us, we can proclaim death is swallowed up in the victory of the cross. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we look forward to the day when that sting of death we will know no more. Because anyone that has stood in front of a dead body knows the sting of death. And it stings hard. But the hope of Christ is that there is victory over all of that. And that day is coming, and that day is coming soon. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this. It says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Our debt has been paid. And I love this last verse. It says, He dismantled the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame and he triumphed over them. Our God is king. Jesus is our king. And he is worthy of our good gifts. He is worthy of our lives. And it's in this place, it's at the cross that God establishes his covenant. This covenant that you and I, that we, we can't keep. But he does it for us. He does it for us. And it's also at the cross that he establishes his kingdom. This kingdom where there is no more night. Where death is no more. Where we are reconciled to him. And we get to share in that place. We're invited to share in that place where he is king. Which inspires kind of a whole new way of living. Because of the cross, because of the relationship that we're invited into with him, we get invited into this brand new place of living, a new place of doing relationship, a new place of doing friendship, a new place of doing marriages and parenting and work. I mean, the gospel, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, it changes everything that we do. We have this new life that is a life of reconciliation. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul gives us a little bit of a picture of what this new life because of the cross looks like. Where covenant and kingdom come together. It says this, chapter 5, verse 14 through 21. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the sake 
of the dead and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God, making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made himself to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the hope, and this is the life that we have that's set before us because of Christ. I love how he begins in verse 14. It says, the love of Christ controls us. I mean, we could just leave right there. We could just say, let that be our prayer this week. Let the love of Christ control us. Because I know that what controls me is like my passions, my desires, my anxieties, my fears. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things at work pulling me this way, that way, every other way. What would it look like to just pause and sit at 2 Corinthians 14, 5.14, and just let that be true. For the love of Christ controls us. And it says this, Because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's covenant language. When you enter into covenant with somebody, you become one with them. And so what Paul is saying is that we are one with Christ. Because Christ has died, we have also Christ, we've also died with Christ. And because Christ has been raised, we have also been raised with him. We share in the victory that Christ has accomplished for us. And it's kind of wild to be like, well, what does it mean for me to die? And I think it means to allow Jesus to put to death our fears, our anxieties, our worries, the things of our flesh, the things that distract us, the things that pull us into places where we, when we get there, we're like, man, how did I get here? This is not where I wanted to be. Would we let the love of Christ control us? And this is what he says in 16. He says, Therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. And then it says in 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. There is new life for us. With every breath, there is new hope that life can be different, that we can live in a new way. And the way that he is calling us to live is to be reconciled. He's saying, hey, you know that you are reconciled to Christ. Know that there is peace there. But then also go and give that peace to other people. Share it with the world. What we see happening in here is that we have been given... <coughs> Sorry, Lost my place. What's happened here is that we have been given the identity that Christ has been given. Christ came to reconcile the world to him. We have been given the call to go and reconcile the world also to us. It's the same work. It's the same work. It's the same relationship that God has with us we are called to have towards each other. And so in Christ we have been given his identity and we've also been given a responsibility.
The identity is that we are his sons, and that we are loved. And the responsibility is that we get to go into the world as his ambassadors. And so like I said this morning as we started, there is these two kind of themes weaving through the Bible, the themes of this covenant and kingdom. And what I love is that the covenant is the place where we find value. The covenant that says you are the son, you are the daughter, it's where we find where we are valued. In the kingdom of God that's moving forward, it's where we find vision. It's kind of pointing out this is where we're going. And I want you to come with me as we go. And at the cross, we get a picture of both our value and the vision. And so it's my prayer that we would live from that place. That as we go and as we take communion, that we wouldn't just remember the cross, that we wouldn't just remember the passion, that we wouldn't just remember Christmas, but that we would participate in it. That we would live alongside of him as people that reconcile with others in our lives, that we'd be people that also absorbed hurt and pain and gave forgiveness and freedom on the other end of that. I think this is what it looks like to be representatives of this covenant of this kingdom and what God calls us to at the cross. And so I know that's a lot to meditate on this morning, and I just pray that God has been speaking to you throughout this time. And just whatever it is that he's saying, I don't know what he's saying. Maybe you need to hear that you're his son. Maybe you need to hear that things have been absorbed and that you've been forgiven. Maybe you are being called to go and forgive someone else, to go and be reconciled. Maybe you're called to do some absorbing yourself. I don't know what God is saying to you this morning, but I believe that God is speaking to each one of us and he's calling us to go. And so as we take communion, we just enter into that place where he gave himself for us. May we rest that he has done it and that it is finished. And that he is a worthy king. Would you guys pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together to open your word. And to lean into the climax of your story. Where you gave your son because of the incredible love that you have for us. God, we thank you for your heart for us. God, I pray that we would be like the little chicks that would find protection under your wings. And God, in this world where there is great trouble, where there is great anxiety, where there is great strife, where we are very far from reconciliation from one another, God, I pray that you would call us as a people to put down our walls, to put down our pride, to die to ourselves, and to live as you to the world, offering forgiveness and reconciliation and freedom to everyone that we come across. God, give us the grace and the strength to do this for your good. In your name we pray. Amen.